Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 8 on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Speaking of education, my wife Trina works in a school. She's an occupational therapist who works primarily with students with special needs. And I'm incredibly proud of her and the work that she does. I also have to acknowledge that I do worry about her being on a school campus. Twice every year, she and her colleagues review active shooter trainings. Somehow that has become a normal part of being an educator. That is wrong. Schools are supposed to be safe places. They are filled with kids and the adults that have dedicated their lives to educating, supporting, uplifting, and motivating them. That someone would kill a bunch of innocents in an elementary school, or for that matter a grocery market, or any other damn place, is a tragedy. That politicians can't or more often won't come together to create gun laws, gun laws that most people support, requiring background checks and limitations on automatic weapons, is shameful. That is the first step towards common sense gun control. And I know, those laws won't stop every person wanting to get a gun from getting one. Those laws won't prevent every future school shooting, as much as I want that to be a possibility. But they will stop some. And even preventing one will mean the world to the community of people who are less likely to lose a child, a spouse, a sibling, a partner, a classmate, or a friend to gun violence. So many have spoken more eloquently than I over the past few days on this subject. I'll try to share some of that at the end of this episode. Jimmy Kimmel's comments that this is not the time to be silent, this is the time to be loud, resonate. More guns are not the answer. Demand that your lawmakers, your local congresspersons, vote in favor of common-sense gun control laws like H.R. 8, and the efforts to provide more mental health services in your community. Those efforts might prevent future tragedies. I could use another cup of coffee. And since this is a show about coffee, I'm going to have one. While I tell you about today's guest, Ryan Sullivan. He is the Director of Coffee Operations at the award-winning Moster Coffee Company, and he is joining Roast West Coast for the very first time as a Coffee Smarter expert. Ryan just returned from competing in the U.S. Coffee Tasting Championships in Boston. Today we're going to get to know him a little bit, and he's going to talk us through what the competition experience is like. Moster Coffee's 4S Ranch Coffee Shop was featured in my most recent Bean Journal article in the Coast News newspaper, and it's also on RoastWestCoast.com. If you're in the San Diego area, you can have your own Moster experience at any of their three cafes, 4S Ranch, Bankers Hill, or the original Carmel Valley Ranch location. Ryan was chatting with me from the Moster Roasting headquarters, and even though he was chatting from an office with a closed door, I could hear the work of coffee being roasted in the background, which, if you've listened to this show, you know that I love. And now that I'm thinking about it, I first interviewed Mostra's co-founders, Bev and Jay Lynn, while they were sitting in their Carmel Mountain Ranch Cafe. After this, you should go back and listen to that episode to learn more about Mostra Coffee's origin story. By now, you should be pouring hot water over your V60 brewer, watching the carbon dioxide bubbles burst, and listening to the sweet, sweet sounds of coffee draining through the paper filter into your favorite coffee mug. Because it is time for this Coffee Smarter episode with our newest coffee expert, Ryan Sullivan of Moster Coffee Company.
go. This is actually the second time we've met. We ran into each other yeah. in a parking lot. Uh, but welcome to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, well, this is the first time you're on the show. Introduce yourself. Uh, let people know where you work and what you do there. Cool. Yeah. Well, nice to meet you again. Yeah, my name is Ryan Sullivan, the director of coffee operations for Moster Coffee. Uh, it's kind of an ambiguous title for saying that I do a lot of different things around here. <laughs> so no one specific task, uh, but yeah, just handle handle kind of a lot of stuff. Does that mean that you uh, that you roast coffee, or that you're creating like the plan for the roasting team, or? Uh, on the other side of things in operations, just not specifically every day, this is what you do, but is that part of it? Definitely not roasting. Um, I used to roast a little bit over here and my early days at Mostra played a bigger part in developing roast profiles, but not anything that I do now. I say the most involvement that I have in, in the roasting process is myself and the production team. We QC every batch of coffee that we roast and analyze roast curves and profiles and talk about tweaking, you know, flavors and things like that. Um, so we do that every day and then green coffee buying, uh, would be the other major, major thing that, that I kind of have my, my hands in. So I used to do all the sample roasting on our Akawa for the green buying program. I do maybe like 30% or less of it now, if I can help it and try to just focus on, on tasting coffee. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what goes into tasting coffee. You, you're just back uh, recently from the U.S. Coffee Tasting Championships. And I asked about roasting a little bit facetiously because you work with Nick Berardi, who just won the National uh, Roasting Championship. And I want to get into that. But yeah. since you are a new coffee smarter expert to the show, I'm wondering, I want to learn a little bit more about you. I'm wondering if you had like a first experience with coffee that really kind of inspired you, made you think it was something more than just, this is something I'm going to do before I go about the rest of my day. Definitely. So I uh, never drank coffee ever in my life. And, you know, my parents were at the time, you know, more traditional, like you get, you know, uh, you go get a job at a company with good benefits and things like that. So uh, in college, I found myself working at Starbucks. Again, didn't drink coffee at the time. Decided that if I was working there, I really wanted to know more about what I was doing. And this is totally like, this is actually real. Like I, I, I really did feel like that. It was not this some story I made up after the fact. So, you know, I started drinking coffees there, you know, started with dark roast things because that's what I thought people did. You know, people who drink coffee, drink dark roast coffees with, with, you know, cream and sugar. And at the time I had a friend back here in San Diego who was also getting into coffee. And so when I, when I came back home for a quick visit, we went to uh, Bird Rock Coffee Roasters and the original location in, in Bird Rock, La Jolla at the time. And remember paying $9 or something for <laughs> this uh, geisha from Panama and sat outside on the bench and took a sip and was like, that was a hundred percent my aha moments and driving back up to, to Santa Barbara. I was like, I, I need to get involved in coffee. And I just knew instantly that that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. 
Man, I, I'm envious of people who have that moment. I, I've had that moment, but I've had it like 25 times about yeah. 25 <laughs> different things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always trying to find that thing. Uh, that's that's very cool. You ended up working at Bird Rock. I'm, I'm wondering what is kind of your, you're at Mostra Coffee now, but before Mostra, what were you doing? Yeah. So Starbucks, like I said, to start uh, in college, then in Santa Barbara at the time, it was called the French Press. It's it's now Dune Coffee Roasters. So on my trip back to Santa Barbara, right after this this fantastic cup of coffee that you know definitely changed the tra- trajectory of my life, basically uh, went and chatted with Todd. Um, they used to do this uh, slow bar Saturday at the French Press. So it was like this roll up door uh, right by their roaster, and you order a pour over and you just chat. So chatted with Todd, got an interview for you know probably a few days later. And ended up getting a job job there, so I was there for for a little bit. Coincidentally, like right at the same time that Jared Truby and Chris Baca from Cat and Cloud um, had just left Verve, and Jared actually came on as director of operations for the French Press. Uh, so it was a pretty cool, um, you know, looking back on it, definitely like a pretty cool like you know, a couple of role models who, you know, kind of helped train and I got to chat with them about, you know, just all these different coffee ideas in my head. That's really interesting that you mentioned them. I, I've interviewed a couple of people this week who have all mentioned Cat and Cloud and you mm-hmm. can kind of see this, this, I want to call it a coaching tree. Cause like in the NFL, they talk about like all these assistant coaches, like went on to become, you know, yeah. head coaches. And yeah. it kind of feels like there's a, a linkage like that in coffee as well, where so many people worked under the same people that motivated and inspired and uplifted them, or at least got them to the next step. That's one that keeps coming up. Yeah, no, they're, they're both, they're both fantastic guys. Um, you know, know a lot of stuff and I don't think at the time I was able to fully grasp because I, I didn't know much myself. Right. But hundred <laughs> percent a self-proclaimed coffee nerd. And, you know, a long time ago, there wasn't things like Barista Hustle and James Hoffman wasn't making, you know, all these YouTube videos. So anything that you could learn was, you know, a few home barista forums here and there. And then just talking to people that, you know, you were able to get in contact with to learn about coffee. So they were both super helpful. And anyways, when I left Santa Barbara, came back to San Diego, ended up uh, getting a job at Bird Rock, uh, started at the um, original location in La Jolla and then, uh, moved to the Morena Boulevard roasting facility and, uh, ended up, you know, kind of co-managing that space for a few years. And the whole time, even when I was in Santa Barbara and I'd come back, uh, my, my experience with, with Mostra is, is kind of this long saga of, um, me going in as a, as a customer, the owner's we're running the, running the shop since, you know, late 2013. And I probably came here 2014. So right after they had started and just, there was no coffee in North County, San Diego, and I'm from Escondido. So kind of had this, like, I guess, dream of, you know, wanting to, to kind of work back at a, at a roastery doing what I like to do, you know, kind of near where I, where I was living at the time, instead of driving all the way to, you know, La Jolla or driving down to, to SeaWorld basically. So you, I think it was, yeah, probably three years of me coming into Mostra as, as a customer. And during that time, just, you know, chatting, nagging to 
uh, to an extent of, <laughs> hey, hire me. Let me let me do this and this and this. And uh, yeah, I guess three years just eventually warmed down, and uh, they finally caved and, and let me let me on board and do do what I do. The motivation to find work closer to home is so strong. I think in Southern California. Yeah. My wife and I moved from Pacific Beach up here to Carlsbad because she works in Oceanside. Mm-hmm. And then I was commuting back to Pacific Beach, made it about a year. And I was like, the drive or even the train trip could be 45 minutes or it could be three hours. Yeah. I got to do something else. Yeah. And uh, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so today, uh, Coffee Smarter Expert, Coffee Smarter Shows, we try to like teach people a little bit about either the coffee industry or something specific. I mentioned earlier that you just got back from the U.S. Coffee Championships, uh, which is a huge nationwide competition uh, that leads to a world competition. You specifically participated in a tasting competition. And I'm wondering if you can give us just like, what is that? What does it entail? And then how do you train for something like that? Yeah. So U.S. Cup Tasters, I guess for anyone that doesn't know, um, cupping is the essentially international uh, platform and standard for how we taste and evaluate coffee. In the competition uh, setup, it's it's a little bit different where we have six triangulations. Each triangle includes uh, two coffees. So there's three bowls, two coffees are alike, one coffee is dissimilar. And as quickly and accurately as you can, you have to go through each triangle and taste the coffees and essentially uh, pick the pick the odd coffee out. So you're not picking necessarily like a flavor note or, or a this or a that. It's just this coffee is different than the other two. How quickly can you identify that coffee from the other coffees? Uh, and you do that six times. You basically have uh, six minutes to, to complete the whole set. If you, if you use all of that time, the score is based on accuracy first, and then followed subsequently by time. So if you're the only person that gets all six triangles right, then you win. If you're one of five people that get five right, then it's who did it the fastest and who did it the slowest, and that's how it's ranked from from there on. And I'm assuming there's more than just six competitors. So I'm, are there heats? Is it like multiple, like you're constantly doing this? Is it? And I guess I should ask about the time of it. Is it just like a one day event or is it over multiple days? Um, and I asked that because we just we just had a Q grader on the show talking about his his testing process, which was multiple days. So we did regional competitions uh, back in 2020, right before the pandemic. And myself and, and Nick both qualified respectively in our, our own competitions. But then due to COVID, we, we didn't actually compete until this year. So uh, regionals, it's, I, I think, maybe 48 slots or something like that. And then you compete uh, in regionals, and, and they pick the top, you know, so many people from each competition to move on to the national stage. And then it's the, it's, it's the top qualifiers from every regional competition across the country compete at the national level. So the first round in, in Boston was the just the I don't know if they had a name for it exactly it was just round round one I guess so round one you're competing I think at the time it was maybe 20 maybe it was supposed to be 24 of the top people from across the country from every regional competition competing in Boston and then and then from there it went to the top 16 
down to the top eight, to the top four, and then the final heat is the top four. And that's spread over the course of a few days. So round one is, is the first day, then quarterfinals is the second day, semifinals and finals are both occurring on the third day. It's interesting to me that you kind of have to have like a multi-day stamina for your palate. Yeah. You know, like I can drink the same coffee at home every, a couple days in a row and it might not taste the same to me because of whatever reason and might have a hard time picking out the same flavors even. Yeah, and it, it's weird in competitions. Uh, this was definitely news to me because I'd never competed at the regional level, but um, they're not coffees that um, I would say people that uh, are in specialty coffee would be familiar with. Um, the coffee is typically donated by um, some large roaster uh, who is usually anonymous, and they plan each triangulation so they progressively get harder each day and each round. So round one technically would be the easiest triangulation, then round two, round three, round four, et cetera, getting a little bit harder each time. But they're all incredibly, or, or can be incredibly dark roasted coffees, um, which, is, which was definitely not something I was prepared for. I've been wanting to say this for a couple of minutes, but it sounds like, it sounds like a photo hunt for your mouth. Like which, <laughs> which of these two things is, is, are the same or which of these is not like the other, you know, like in the old highlights magazines when you're at the dentist. Yeah. That's like what I'm thinking of right now. Yeah. Uh, so how do you train for something like that? If it's not done in the same way that we traditionally think of cupping where we're looking at aroma and flavor, I mean, I'm assuming you're using all those same skills, but you have to mentally transform them into a different answer. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I did, I did fine in the competition. I made it through the quarterfinal rounds. So didn't do excellent, but yeah, you know, I would say I did, I did okay. And I did not train for the competition. Like I said earlier, you know, Nick and I and, and the rest of the team, we, we do cup coffee all the time. And so um, and we cup blinds for everything that we roast. So we just have bowls on the table. We cup, we identify things we like and don't like about each coffee. And then we talk about it afterwards. And, and, and only upon the, the end of the cupping do we actually reveal what each coffee is. Now, we do cup a lot of the same coffees every day. So like, as I'm going through, I can usually be, okay, well, that's like probably our Brazil and this is our, you know, Colombia from, from this region and, you know, our Ethiopia from here and here and here. Right. So, uh, I felt pretty, pretty prepared in that sense, just in, you know, having a lot of time and experience cupping coffee again, was totally not prepared for how dark and astringent and bitter and drying all of the coffees in the competition were. So, moving forward, I would train differently and brew coffees and taste coffees that I guess get my palate a little bit more acclimated for those. So it didn't come as a total shock when I get to the table and I start drinking these coffees and I'm like, wow, I have, have you know, never cupped coffees like this before. Well, that's a, that's the next question then. Is this something you plan to continue doing competition or have you been through the ringer and you're like, uh, I don't know. Like, what's well, the benefit I, to you to do the competitions? I got to win it one day. <laughs> Is, now that Nick has bragging rights? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't let Nick have all the fun. <laughs> I mean, it's honestly, you know, like I said, it's 24 people each time. They're all fantastic, you know, cuppers. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting competition where uh, it, it's almost like this great equalizer where you can have somebody who won it last year 
you know, maybe not make it through the regional competition. You know, Q graders cannot make it through the regional competition. Uh, can also get totally knocked out, uh, you know, in the first round, or maybe they make it to the last round and then do horribly in the last round. So it's just a really interesting competition, and I, I have a lot of fun doing it. I'm definitely an introvert to an extent. So if I was going to do a competition, that's also the only one that I would really feel that comfortable doing because I don't really have to talk to people and give this whole presentation. And I just taste coffee and I just let that speak for itself. And, and I mean, again, we do that, we do that every day. So. Sure. Well, you were there um, with the Moster team and, and we mentioned Nick uh, who won his competition. He's going to be on the show later this season. I'm trying to relate it to sports because it's like a team, right? Like, yeah. Uh, is there coaching as in your job, like between you and Nick, how do you support each other during the competition other than just being there, which I'm kind of also curious as to what the experience was like to be at a convention, you know, after two years of, of building towards it. Yeah. So the, the first thing talking about coaching and, and the team aspect, um, I definitely think team support um, can go a long way. Uh, I think you're definitely a little bit envious of, of other competitors who, you know, when their name's called or, or their round is finished, they just have this, you know, roaring applause as opposed to someone who's there, you know, without anybody to support them. And it's silent other than the, the kind of generic clap, you know, congratulations, you, you completed that round. Um, so I think that part's great. And it's just the, you know, the, the team, um, team spirit, um, seeing familiar faces and, and stuff like that is, is really encouraging. And I think uplifting, I was Nick's coach for, for the roasting competition and Nick and I just work, I think really well together. We actually used to work together at Bird Rock quite a few years ago and obviously knew each other back then. And then Nick kind of made his way um, over here to Mostra a few years after I had been here. And uh, we just, I think we work really well, like in stride with each other. So because we cup every day together, you know, I kind of already know what Nick's thinking and he knows what I'm thinking. Kind of, you know, we spit out similar flavor notes, but, you know, we also can riff off of each other and like, I'm like, okay, well, I like what you said, but like, I kind of think like, you know, during the roast profile, like this is going to happen and change this flavor into this. So for the coach aspect of roasters competition, the only thing that I can really do is, is taste uh, Nick's coffee. And the only chance we actually had to taste the coffee that Nick was roasting was his sample batch. So Nick roasts a sample of the green coffee. We get to cup it once. And then from that cupping, we have to translate what we tasted in the sample Nick has to formulate a roast plan and we have to call out what we think is going to happen during the roast plan and what that result is going to be on the flavor of the coffee. So it was a little bit tricky, but again, you know, you're competing against the top 24 best roasters in the country. And it's like everyone roasts great coffee, um, you know, a little bit to each their own. So we were just trying to do our, you know, play our game and, and we roast coffee the way we roast coffee and, I think, again, having just Nick and I with some familiarity with each other, being able to taste it and both know a very clear direction of like how we would approach this coffee if we were roasting it in our own space. And that's just what we did. Uh, now that you're back, has anything changed at Mostra uh, with the experience? And Mostra's already been acclaimed for other things, but there's probably new attention. And are you going to get to go to the world championships in Italy? Yeah, we just got back and it was just busy. Uh, I think 
not necessarily entirely related to Nick winning the competition, but just we were all gone for a week, let's call it. So it's, you know, all the backup of, of coffee that we hadn't been able to roast and catching up on the cafe orders and, and things of that nature. Doing terrible podcasts. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we do um, a good amount of, like, have a good amount of uh, media outreach and attention that we're trying to, to build, um, especially leading up to the world competition. So we've both been doing some you know, TV shows and, and segments and things like that. I've been slurping coffee really loudly on, on some TV stations and, and Nick's been talking about what it's like to, you know, win the competition and what it's like preparing for the worlds. And then, then Nick has this whole other windfall of like all these prizes and, you know, he's, he's supposed to go on an origin trip and he's going to Hawaii in, in a week or so for this Hawaii coffee association and, and all these things that he's participating in now. So that's been a whole extra, you know, hurdle to kind of get through. But yeah, the world competition, definitely, it'll be Nick and I again, for sure, roasting and, you know, me doing, I guess, the minimal amount of coaching that I can do and uh, trying to just help support as best I can. Well, it's a great accomplishment. And I mean, for most are obviously, but also just for, I think, coffee in the San Diego region, generally, it, it brings a lot of attention and is like, oh, well, what are they doing there? And I mean, I live here and I know we have great roasters here, but it helps to have, you know, that, that message spread every chance we get. So thank you for that. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you for coming on the show. I know I get to have you at least one more episode this season. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, thanks for getting us coffee smarter today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. To recap, like a lot of coffee professionals, Ryan got his start at Starbucks, even though he didn't drink coffee at the time. That came later. One cup of single-origin pour-over Panama Geisha at Bird Rock Coffee Roasters in La Jolla changed his coffee journey and his life. Before making his way down to San Diego, he worked with some inspiring coffee professionals, including Jared Truby and Chris Baca, before they started Cat and Cloud Coffee in Santa Cruz, California. Coincidentally, I've actually interviewed several coffee pros on this show, who traced their journey back to time with the team behind Cat and Cloud. I like to think that I've had a positive impact on some of my former restaurant employees and colleagues, but unless they tell me so, I'll never really know. Being able to interview so many coffee professionals, I'm actually starting to see networks of people whose connections began when they worked with someone who uplifted them, motivated them, and got them to the next step in their career. Now Ryan is in a position to be that person for the team working with him. Competing in the tasting championships is a big deal, and it was pretty interesting to hear what the experience was like. In particular, how different it was from Ryan's everyday daily cupping for work. This year's World Coffee Championships are in Milan, Italy, June 23rd through the 25th. Ryan will be there supporting his teammate, head roaster at Moster Coffee's Nick Berardi, who is competing as the U.S. Roasting Champ representative. Finally, I think of you all out there listening to this podcast and reading the newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com as my teammates. Just by being there, you motivate me to continue to try to improve as an interviewer, a podcaster, and a writer every single week. That's all the coffee smartening I have for you today. If you have questions you'd like answered on a future Coffee Smarter episode, send them to the show on Instagram at RoastWestCoast. And if you want to see what coffee is being served at Moster Coffee Company, head to mostercoffee.com 
or follow at Moster Coffee on Instagram, and be sure to check out the Moster Experience. I'll be back next week with an interview with Samir Benoit, the founder and head roaster of Milka Coffee in Sacramento, California. You can stream that, this, and every Roast West Coast Coffee podcast on any major podcasting platform. But the best way to make sure you never miss one is by subscribing to the newsletter at roastwestcoast.com. That newsletter will show up every week with the podcast right in your email inbox. Thank you for listening to the show today and to my industry partners, including Moster Coffee Company, Ascend Coffee Roasters, Ignite Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, First Light Whiskey, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Morea Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, and Cafe La Terre. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee. And now, I turn this platform over to Jimmy Kimmel, speaking on his show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, courtesy of ABC. Hi, it's Jimmy, and I wanted to speak to you directly without an audience for just a bit before we start the show, because here we are again on another day of mourning in this country. Once again, we grieve. for the uh, little boys and girls whose lives have been ended and whose families have been destroyed while our, our leaders on the right, the Americans at Congress and at Fox News and these other outlets warn us not to politicize this. Um, they immediately criticize our president for even speaking about doing something to stop it because they don't want to speak about it because they know what they've done and they know what they haven't done and they know that it's indefensible. So they'd rather sweep this under the rug. And, uh, you know, most Americans support keeping guns out of the hands of criminals and children. The majority of us do, Democrats and Republicans. And the reason they call them common sense gun laws is because that's what they are, common sense. 89% of Americans want background checks before a gun can be purchased, which is the, just the very least we can do. A bipartisan bill passed in the House, it's been stalled in the Senate for over a year now. They won't pass it because our cowardly leaders just aren't listening to us. They're listening to the NRA. They're listening to those people who write them checks, who keep them in power, because that's the way politics work. That's the idea we settle on. So we tell ourselves, but it doesn't have to be that way. Not for this. You know, um, you can tell things are out of whack when the coach of the Golden State Warriors shows more leadership and passion than almost every Republican in Congress. And I'm, I say this, this tonight with the hope, not with an expectation, but with the hope that people like Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott and John Cornyn, people who were elected by Texans, will actually listen to it. Instead of going right to gun control laws don't work and we need armed teachers and guards at schools. If your solution to children being massacred is armed guards, you haven't been paying attention to what's going on. 
Uh, there was an armed guard in Buffalo. There was an armed guard in Parkland. There was an armed guard in Uvalde. They had armed guards. There were police officers armed on the scene. And these murders still happen. And gun control laws do work, by the way. We know this. 26 years ago, Scotland had a school shooting that killed 16 kids and a teacher. And the government responded by enacting gun control legislation. And there hasn't been a school shooting in Scotland since then. In 1996 in Australia, a mass shooting killed 35 people. They passed gun legislation. They haven't had one since. This is the only country where this keeps happening. Firearms are now the number one cause of death for American children and teens. Number one. Senator Ted Cruz, I will say, is stepping up to comfort the people he serves, uh, who are, is the NRA. Ted is scheduled to speak at an NRA event this weekend. And here's the thing. I don't believe Ted Cruz doesn't care about children. I don't. I, I refuse to believe he's unaffected by this. He's a father. I bet he went to bed sick to his stomach last night. It's easy to call someone a monster, but he's not a monster. He's a human being. And some people might not like hearing me say that, but it's true. So here's the thing I would like to say to Ted Cruz, the human being, and Governor Abbott, and everyone. It's okay to admit you made a mistake. In fact, it's not just okay, it's necessary to admit you made a mistake when your mistake is killing the children in your state. It takes a, a big person to do something like that. It takes a brave person to do something like that. And do I think these men are brave people? No, I don't. I don't. But man, I would love it if they surprised me. I would love it if any of these guys surprised me. I don't know. Um, this is not a time for moments of silence. This is a time to be loud and to stay loud and not stop until we fix this. Some people say this is a mental health problem. Uh, others say it's a gun problem. It, it, it is both, and it can be both. So let's work on both of those. There have been 27 school shootings so far this year in this country, and it's May. <laughs> How does this make sense? to anyone. These are our children. And our representatives are supposed to represent us. We want limits on who can walk around with an AR-15 and it damn well shouldn't be a teenager who works at a fast food restaurant. If we can't agree on that, forget it. This is not their fault anymore. This is now our fault because we get angry, we demand action, we don't get it, they wait it out. We go back to the lives that we should rightfully be able to go back to. But you know who doesn't forget it? The parents of the children at Sandy Hook and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and now Robb Elementary School. They won't forget it. So if you care about this, and we all do, doesn't matter what party we vote for, we all care about this. We need to make sure that we do everything we can that, to make sure that unless they do something drastic, that let's make sure that not one of any of these politicians ever holds office again. And I'll leave you today with Steve Kerr, coach of the Golden State Warriors NBA team, speaking before their game against the Dallas Mavericks the night of the Uvalde shooting. Kerr has long been a proponent of gun control, 
His father, Malcolm Kerr, was assassinated by gunmen in Beirut when Steve was 18 years old. This clip is courtesy of the Golden State Warriors. Um, I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight, but I want every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister or brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough.